Memo, a podcast with an exclamation point. My guest this week is J.J. Redick of the Los Angeles Clippers. In addition to being the starting shooting guard of the Clippers, J.J. is also a podcaster, a watch collector, and a busy father of two. This week we spoke about growing up in a big family, playing in the NBA, and the ability to reinvent yourself in your late 30s. Here's my discussion with J.J. Redick. All right, JJ, you're on Blamo. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me on. I just think, first of all, your intro music is just fantastic. <laughs> That's and... my old band. <laughs> well, that explains a lot now. I, I never knew that. And also, <laughs> the exclamation point is just is just spot on. So, oh, I just, thanks. I, when you told me about your podcast and I like, found it on iTunes, I was like, oh, this is perfect. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, my friend had helped me do that uh more the fact that it's really good seo so and it was just kind of like funny and goofy and you know because there's so many podcasts out there that he's like oh yeah if you tell someone that they can just google it it'll be the first thing that pops up no it's good it's good <laughs> there are a lot of podcasts out there by the way yeah um, it's like for someone who has their own podcast it's becoming problematic <laughs> well luckily yours has your name in it so you're you're in better shape it's tough, though. Yeah. So there's a ton of stuff that I'd love to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about your pod. I want to talk to you about the NBA. Um, I mentioned to you this to you a little bit earlier before we started that this will probably be the least NBA-focused pod you've ever done. I probably won't mention a pick and roll at all. Good. Um, <laughs> so it's more about getting to know J.J. Redick as an athlete, but also a guy who is a father of two, a watch collector, a podcaster, you know, uh, you know, a man of style, all sorts of other things in here. So, but before we get like too deep, I want to talk to you a little bit about your background. So you're from, uh, you're what your fam middle of five kids, big family. Yeah. Big family. Uh, I'm the middle of five kids. I, I grew up mostly in Virginia, uh, but I was born in Tennessee. Um, I always like telling this story, but my uh, I was the, the the second born of three kids. I have older sisters that are identical twins. They're about four and a half years older than me. Um, but at the time that I was born, we lived in a holler in Tennessee, in the middle of nowhere, outside about thirty minutes outside of a small town called Cookville, where Tennessee Tech is. And uh, my parents were just total hippies. They lived on this property in this holler with. I think four other families. So there was five families and each of them sort of had like, um, uh, like a purpose, uh, on the, on the commune, you would call it a commune, I guess. And, uh, they were all like, they were all like artisans and my parents made, um, made pottery. And that was their, their source of income at the time that I was born. And, uh, my dad not only made pottery, I think he also, well, I know he also grew um, just a little small personal stash of marijuana on the other side of the hill uh, in a, in a cornfield. So my parents were very much like, just like, I don't want to call them vagabonds, but they were, they were alternative lifestyle to, to the nth degree. Wow. So how, how long, I mean, did you, was it one sort of thing where like I had friends that their parents were very, you know, they didn't really grow up on a farm or a commune, but they were very sort of conservative, you know, like they couldn't listen yeah. to certain music. Like my dad right. wasn't allowed. He was sneaking in Simon and Garfunkel records when he was younger. Yeah. 
So like, was it very sheltered or? Well, it's interesting because like my dad was really into rock and roll. He, he likes to, to, uh, to tell the story about how he was like a bodyguard at a concert for the stones one time or something. And my mom, my mom was sort of the same thing. Um, but then like shortly after I was born, um, my, my parents were, were born again. They became Christians. Um, they moved out of the holler. They moved into town. They opened uh, an art gallery. Eventually, my dad went and got certified as a counselor and became a substance abuse counselor, of all ironies, a substance abuse counselor for adolescents, uh, which eventually led us to Charlottesville. My brother was born there. We had a brief detour in Pennsylvania for about 10 months. My little sister was born there, and then we moved back to Roanoke, Virginia, uh, when I was like seven. And so growing up, uh, we were, we, I would say I grew up in a very, very conservative household. Um, my parents made a choice when, they're, when they became born again that there, there wasn't going to be alcohol in our house um, until their kids were grown. So like, I didn't see alcohol. My parents drink a glass of wine or have a beer till. I think my younger brother was 21 or maybe even maybe my little sister. Like it was it was years. It was 18, 20 years um, before I ever saw them even have a bottle of wine in the house. Um, You know, we didn't have cable television until I was like 13 years old. Uh, There were no like Saturday morning cartoons. I I would, you know, go help my dad chop firewood. I mean, those were those were my Saturday mornings as a kid. Um, and, and me and my older sisters were also homeschooled for, for most of our early schooling as well. So it was like just very family oriented and, um, and yeah, like it was, uh, it was, uh, yeah, uber conservative. <laughs> wow. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. I think that's something that's a little bit similar with, so before I, I get into this, my mother, she, uh, grew up, um, single mom, single, a single parent household. And, uh, she grew up, uh, my, my grandmother is American Indian and and they grew up on a, uh, a reservation. Wow. And, uh, my, so my grandma, she was not, uh, she was not religious or anything at all. And my, you know, she became like, you know, born again, Christian through my mother because my mom became a Christian in high school. And the reason why I say that is because I think, you know, also my in-laws became Christians after, uh, they were married and had a couple kids and, uh, they kind of like scaled way back in the sense of, whoa, whoa, wait, I'm a Christian now. Everything else around me, you know, it has, has the potential to cause me to sin or be evil and things like that. So you, you just like, you know, you just close everything up and the, uh, versus I have, you know, like my, this was the same with my dad. Like everything was just kind of like, you know, off limits. Um, sure. Do you think that's kind of what like got you more into sports or anything? Or was it, <laughs> it was, I mean, I'm like trying to connect this here. I'm like, wow. No, well, well first of all, uh, you know, in regards to sort of just like Christianity, and I, I think a lot of uh, Christians and a lot of people really in any religion, not just Christianity, but a lot of uh, people that are religious, and I'm using air quotes here because we're sure we're not a person, but I'm using air quotes. A lot of people that are religious, they they sort of follow a set of rules. Don't yeah. do this. Do this. Be in church every Sunday. If you don't go to church, you're a bad person. So they follow the set of rules, and and at least in my faith, in my religion, which I'm a Christian, uh, you lose sort of sight of uh, what Christianity really is, and Christianity is a relationship. 
with with God and with Jesus. And so it's not necessarily a set of rules. And so it's funny you mentioned like kind of shunning the world. Like, you know, God, I, I believe this, like God created us to have joy and to sort of live with joy. I mean, listen, Jesus was at a wedding and they ran out of wine and he turned the water to wine so that people could keep having fun. He was like, guys, let's get lit. Let's keep going. Yeah. He, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus came down and he's like, I'm going to hang out with all the sinners. I'm going to hang out with all the bad people. Like there, there's, so for me, like, I, I think you grow up in a, in a, in a Christian household and then you become an adult and you eventually sort of have to formulate, formulate your own set of beliefs and values and as a father now, like I, I've already started thinking about like, how do I, you know, sort of transfer those beliefs and values to my two boys? They're, they're very young. So I tried to explain Jesus to my two year old the other day. Um, he just kind of gave me a blank stare and was like, Legos. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. And like, I didn't, I don't mean to, to get so deep so quick, but just because it's such a fascinating topic to me. Um, in regards of religion, you know, my older brother just had a baby not too long ago. And there's been a little bit of like internal family strife because my, so my, my father is a pastor, yeah. uh, was he's retired now. My mother is still a pastor and, uh, she's like, does children's ministry. And it was really important for, you know, her first granddaughter, um, to like have a child dedication service. Now it wasn't baptism. Uh, this is more of like, you know, uh, you know, you're going to dedicate your child's life to, you know, trying to, you know, make a purpose for them and, and, and teach them about God and the things that are important to you. And my older brother was like, no, no, absolutely (laughs) not. And it's been like this kind of internal sort of battle of Mm -hmm. how do you do that? And, you know, what's interesting is, uh, cause there's a, a, a speaker that I follow and he talks about how there's unchurched and overchurched. And I would say, like, from our side of the family, like, we're kind of overchurched. So, like, as yeah. we've gotten older, we've been like, you know what? It's it's not just, like, Wednesday nights is church and Sunday nights is church and all these nights in church and your whole life is church to where that, like, we kind of rebelled against. But in some ways, I think that that's actually made me more open and aware of, like, my faith. Because, like, yeah. like I moved to New York when I was 19, and one of the things that really hit me when I got, you know, you could, you can come to New York, you can do whatever you want. I could tell anyone anything. I'm Kirkland from Costco. I'm whatever, you know, whatever. And, uh, my dad, I remember I talked to him he's like, I'm really excited because then you get to learn how to own your own faith. Like, what does that look like? So I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's really exciting, but if anything, you know, my encouragement is I'm sure, you know, Knox and, and, and Kai, did I say his name right? Kai? Kai. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that they'll, you know, they'll kind of just have this curiosity and questions on their own. And they'll be like, wow, why is this important to my dad? Maybe I should try <laughs> no, to make it, it And I like, I like the, you know, what, 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 what you just said about just sort of owning your own faith. I mean, like I get like there's, there's, I think there's two things that people are very opinionated and sensitive, sensitive about one is religion. Mm-hmm. Um, people get, get heated if they talk about sort of religion and the other is politics. Yeah. And I, I th- those are those things where like you, you honestly, like I always try to put myself in someone else's shoes and like, listen, I believe what I believe. Um, I think it's right. But I don't necessarily think like because someone else believes something else, like 
they're, 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 you know, they're a bad person and they're going to hell. Like I get, I mean, I get, listen, we're talking centuries and centuries of different religions going back, you know, 2000 years, 5,000 years. Um, it's, I get why people believe what they believe. I really do. Yeah. Uh, and I think, yeah, eventually you do own it and it becomes personal. And for me, it happened, you know, uh, I guess I was like, it was 2008. So I was, I was 24. Um, and it was the first, I, I started going to this church in Orlando and, uh, it was the first time I ever heard the message of, of grace. You know, I grew up in, in sort of guilt based ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, Turner and Burns. Yeah. Yeah. And this, you know, fire and brimstone, all that yeah. stuff. And, and so you, you get, you, you kind of understand what grace is and, and what it means. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was life changing to be honest with you. And, and to this day, I mean, I, I still like, I still mess up all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm, we're all imperfect human beings. So, uh, I'm still always constantly seeking grace. Yeah. I, I definitely would say the same. And, and I think any, any person that you meet, whether, you know, it's funny because as I'm talking to you right now in my head, I'm like, don't say Christian, don't say Christian, <laughs> because it's, you know, like when you think Christian and stuff now, you know, I, you know, in New York, when I tell people that I go to church or that they think that, you know, I, I hate gays and blah, blah you know, all this sort. And I'm like, whoa, 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 let's scale way back here. I know very little. Uh, I just am trying to believe this and I'm trying to live a life trying to understand what that means. And I think, you know, as I've gotten older, I've realized it's so complex. It's so messed up. You know, I'm a religious book fanatic. Like my bookshelf is just covered in like Rob Bell books and all sorts of other things of me, like trying to understand it. And the more I've like gotten into it, I've gotten more questions of like how messed up Catholicism was, you know, and all this stuff. (laughs) So Anyway, you're not alone in the craziness that is trying to understand I, religion. I think, I think the curiosity is good. I think asking questions is good. Oh, yeah. Uh, There's no I, way I you can too, you can like, swallow this. It, because it's a relationship and it's not a set of rules, at least to me, like it is a constantly evolving thing. Like your 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 beliefs are constantly evolving. They are. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I do get what you're saying about sort of uh, – being hesitant sometimes, I guess, to say like, oh, I'm a Christian because of sort of the negative connotations that come with that, uh, especially like in an election year. Yeah. Uh, you know, being a Christian is often associated with sort of being um, on the on the far right and being some sort of zealot. And uh, yeah. And I mean, for me, listen, I'm I'm like so socially liberal, <laughs> like for a lot of different reasons. And, and so it's like I, I, that sort of has nothing to do with with anything, uh, of, of my, my religion. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, I want to get a little bit back to your hanging out in Virginia. (laughs) No, this is, this is great. I love that we were talking about this. So you're in Virginia, you're, you're growing up relatively, you know, conservative in the sense that you don't have access to, you know, you said you didn't get cable till you're 13. Um, I didn't go to public school until I was like 11. So yeah, I was, I was pretty sheltered. I was pretty sheltered. So how does sports enter the picture here? Cause that seems like a very yeah. much interacting with the outside world. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, my older sisters were my heroes. Uh, quick backstory. My, my name is Jonathan clay, my clay for pottery. My parents gave me that middle name oh, that's and terrible. my older sisters, because they were identical twins and you know, this is what they do, I guess. But when they were like four and five, when I was born, 
they would say everything at the same time. So people would ask what my name was. And my dad called me Jay for short. And they would, my, my sisters would say, Jay, 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 like that. And it just eventually stuck. So they gave me my nickname. Oh. And I, as a kid, I totally owned that because my sisters were my heroes. And I did literally whatever they did. At, at one point in their lives, um, they were like uh, competitive riders. So like I rode horses. Um, what? and then awesome. yeah, we actually owned one. It was like the furthest thing from a thoroughbred you could ever imagine. I think my parents bought it for like three hundred dollars. Uh, we named it Shekinah, and we <laughs> we had it for about six months. Um, and it almost killed my mom and my sister uh, on separate occasions. So we got rid of that. So my parents, so my sisters, they you know they they rode horses, and then they um they like my parents are tall. And they, my sisters passed the six foot mark uh, mm-hmm. when they were like 13 years old and they were like, let's go out for basketball. And I was like, all right, cool. I want to play basketball because my sisters were playing basketball. So I started playing when I was like eight and, um, it was a, it was being in a, you know, a homeschooled setting and being sort of in a church setting. There's not many ways to sort of be competitive and yeah. sports became sort of a competitive outlet. And when my mom saw that, um, she was like, okay, I, I think he's ready for public school. So, so really sports was the reason that I stopped homeschooling. It was so that I could go um, to public school and, and sort of be competitive with other kids, both academically and, uh, and you know, in, in baseball and basketball. Yeah. So did you start baseball first or basket, or was it kind of the same time? It was the same, it was the same year. I think baseball was like the spring season. And then I started basketball, you know, shortly thereafter. Um, I was, I was terrible at basketball. <laughs> like, really? the worst. Oh yeah. I was, I was the worst. I was not the best player on my team. And my first team was Owen 15. So that tells you how good I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, so when does it happen that you become, you know, for lack of better term of just like the superstar where like, Duke's calling you up. I mean, how, how did you evolve oh. through that from losing 15 games? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it was, it was slow. I mean, even, right. you know, when I was, uh, I guess going into seventh grade, yeah, seventh grade. Cause I played ball baseball that year. So, so seventh grade, um, I was like five foot six at the start of seventh grade and I was a decent basketball player, but I was way better at baseball. And my dad, um, basically said like, you know, you, you got to choose a sport. Uh, we don't have time sort of to do both. Um, and, and my, my sisters, you know, at this time were like getting recruited by division one basketball schools. So I was like still all into baseball or, you know, basketball for them. So I was like, all right, I'll do basketball. My dad played in college basketball in, in college. And so I knew he liked basketball more too. So I, I picked basketball. And then in that, um, in that year between seventh and eighth grade, I grew from like five, six to like six, two. And, that's when I sort of became good was eighth grade. I mean, that was the first year where I was like, Oh, Oh, I I can really play. And I mean, by that time, like, you know, some small schools had already started to sort of recruit me or whatever. Um, ninth grade, I grew a little bit more and had, you know, scholarship offers from division one schools by the time I was in ninth grade in high school. That's incredible. And one of those, you know, what I think it's what ASU and, and, or UVA in Florida, they reached out to you and then, and then Duke was the one you went to? Yeah, I think I think Wake and NC State were the first two ACC schools to offer me a scholarship. And then UVA 
And then at the end of my sophomore year, Duke started recruiting me um, sort of by happenstance. Uh, uh, the old Virginia Tech coach had gotten fired, and he briefly worked for Nike. And we met at a camp. And one day after a drill, I was like, hey, can you help me with my footwork coming off screens? And so I stayed for like an hour after the camp was done. And, you know, he helped me with my footwork. And then two years later, he's like, hey, you know, to Coach K, he's like, hey, you guys should check out this kid in Virginia named J.J. Reddick. And, you know, they started recruiting me. They were my dream school always. And um, it was one of those things where as long as, you know, they sort of offered, I was going to go there. But I entertained other schools. I mean, UVA and Florida were probably the two schools that had Duke not offered, it would have come down to. Yeah. And so then you became the youngest commitment in Duke history, right? Yeah. At the time, at the time I was, it was like October, early October, uh, of my junior year, I was 16 years old and, um, I committed to Duke and I was the first guy in my class. We, that we, we knew we were going to have a big class cause, um, Jason Williams and Mike Dunleavy and Boozer were all going to leave, um, for the NBA. So they, they recruited like six guys. They literally recruited six guys and all six of us ended up signing at Duke. Um, so I was the first guy. So I, I helped in the recruiting process of the other five guys. So what's that like in the sense? So, I mean, I, when I was in high school, um, there was, you know, I went to school in St. Louis and there was a kid and he got, you know, recruited by, I don't know, it was like Mizzou or something like that, which, you know, that's what an hour and a half away. But, but when he told everyone in the school, there was like an assembly and there was a big deal. What does that look like? Or what was that like for you? And the fact that, you know, you're in Virginia and now you're this like guy, you're a sophomore, you're 16 years old and you basically declare that you're going to, I think probably at the time, one of the best basketball schools in the United States. Like where did people treat you weird? Was it like, you're the superstar hotshot, you know? Um, I mean, there weren't a ton of professional athletes, uh, to come out of my area. Right. Um, and, and so it was, you know, I, I, I don't think people sort of knew how to handle it. And I, I certainly didn't know how to handle it either. Um, I did, I think I did have a press conference or something, a school, not a, not a total school assembly, but maybe like a press conference, uh, to declare my intention of going to Duke. Um, it was covered by the local news, I'm sure. Um, and that's about it. But, uh, you know, there, there, it was interesting because there were, there were, there were some backlash after I did it from like kids at my school. I remember this football player, um, I'm going to call him out right now. His name is Chris Gold. <laughs> I, I, I saw him after Spanish class and he was, he was talking noise and I was like, man, what are you talking about? He goes, I, I just, I just don't know why you're going to Duke. You're never going to play there. And I was like, oh, I, I was like, man, I, I thought we were friends. Like we hang out after school in eighth period. Like what, what's going on here, man? Um, so I think there was there was a lot of that, uh, some some from UVA fans, some from Virginia Tech fans, but most of it I think was just like, you know, at Duke at the time. I think my junior year they won the national championship. Everybody had heard of Coach K, and so and Coach K had been to the school a couple times. And um, I don't I don't remember myself being a hot shot in high school, or you know, just I, I kind of was uh, more of an introvert, and maybe people maybe people took that as like I was. I was being dickish, but, um, <laughs> but I, I think I didn't, I, I don't think I became a dick till I got to Duke. 
<laughs> that's a good quote. Um, um, well, well, not anymore. I used to be, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, there's – luckily, you've been the guest of a lot of other great podcasts. And, you know, when you talked to uh, Jonah Carey, you talked a little bit about – like, you got really into the Duke thing. And also when you had Chris Paul on your podcast, which we'll get into in a bit, um, how you guys talked about hating each other. And the constant bubsing – Bubsing. I was like, where's the bubs come from? Yeah. Uh, but so you go to Duke and this, a lot of people can figure out by just typing on the internet. You basically break all these records, you crush everyone and you win a championship. And then, you know, and I think the cool thing also about this to just go back real quick, you and I are roughly the same age and thank God we didn't go to high school in the age of social media holy oh hell because i can't yeah. even imagine what it's like you know i mean when i like when jabari parker and just like some of these you know those guys are what they're their second third year now but like when some of these young guys are declaring that they're going to go play in the nba and then there's you know you're you're on high school and you're on snapchat and people are messaging you be like no way man you're never going to play at duke if you do that oh heavens but well, not only that like if i had gone to Duke and behaved the way that I behaved off the court, I would not have lasted past my sophomore year. <laughs> I mean, we, because of social media. Would, yeah, somebody would have caught me on a camera phone doing something idiotic. I mean, I, I was, I, I practically had a standing appointment at the dean's office my first <laughs> two years at Duke. <laughs> I had to do so much like community service, like all this stuff. I mean, it just, and it wasn't like I was, I never harmed anybody, but I just was doing stupid things. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, you're probably doing what normal, you know, 19, 20 year olds do. Like you go drive around in a car late at night, go get fast food and maybe knock people's mailboxes or something, be an idiot. So, I don't know. I mean, that's what I did, yeah. but like, yeah. so then you, you go to the NBA and you go to Orlando and you were at Orlando for a while. You play with Dwight. You guys kind of crush it for a bit. And, uh, cause what you were with Van Gundy at the time. Yeah, I was, uh, I played with Stan yeah. for five years. I was, uh, I was drafted and Brian Hill was the coach my rookie year. Then Stan came in, played for him for five years. And then they did like the rebuild thing. So I was, I was there for year one of the rebuild and then got tra got traded. Uh, Jock Vaughn was the coach then, but I got traded then. But I, I mean, the big thing, and so a lot of people can kind of look up and see how you know you became this insanely intelligent player. Um, and then you go to uh, the Clippers, and so the Clippers. That seems to be pretty cool in the fact that you know, and you talked about this a little bit on your Chris Paul interview on your podcast. But I think the the larger thing that I kind of wanted to discuss is, meanwhile. There's a, there's a lot of players in the NBA, but I think not all of them get the best, I guess, I don't know the right word, media training would be. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think you've, in addition to you being, you know, an athlete, superstar athlete, there's not, you've also had this really good ability to communicate with the rest of the world. And a lot of athletes don't have that ability. And I think in some ways, unfortunately... It can affect, you know, their fan base, their 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 playing down down the road. Because sure. I mean, I, I mean, 
was that an intention that you had is like, oh, I'm going to try to make myself accessible and I'm going to try to, you know, engage with, you know, like reporters and stuff more and, or did that just kind of happen? Um, um, I think it sort of happened. It wasn't like I set out to, um, be accessible. Um, and pro- in fact, probably initially when I was younger, um, I, I, you know, like I always like to say like, uh, when I was like 22 or 23, because of my experience at Duke and living in that fishbowl, um, you know, I, I, I was, I was probably tougher to deal with sort of in interactions. Um, and I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't sort of as thoughtful as I should have been in interactions, whether it be with the media or, um, you know, with like people who would come up and ask for an autograph or a picture at dinner or something like that. Um, I just, I guess I didn't understand the concept of like, when I leave my home, I'm essentially on and not on in, in sort of the fake sense, but just you're on, you have to yeah. expect sort of interactions with people. And again, like I said, I'm an introvert, so I'm naturally not going to like, I'm not going to draw attention to myself, but if people you know, ask me for a picture or an autograph. Like, I don't, I don't think I've had a, a bad interaction with someone in, you know, eight or nine years because I, I get that I'm on. And it's sort of the same thing with the media is I understand that they're, they're doing a job, they're doing their job. Mm-hmm. And most of them are really good at it. And if they are thoughtful uh, with sort of their questioning or with the story, if they're willing to sort of like, dig deeper into something and look at something and not sort of, uh, use, you know, the, the cliched sort of storylines. Um, then I will go down that sort of rabbit hole with them as far as they want to go. I'll open up and, and give them what they want. Um, because they're sort of, they're, they're sort of crossing the line too and saying, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and, and try to do something different here. And so I think that's what I always try to do, um, with, with people like Zach, um, Zach Lowe. You know, it's, it's, yeah, with Zach Lowe, right. It's just sort of, um, you know, just just play the game a little bit with them. And, mm-hmm. and, and not, not sort of, not, again, not in a fake way. It's just sort of be open and be accessible uh, in a way that is is sort of different than the the typical, I guess, athlete answers. Right. So that leads me to connect to this this other point is, so you have a podcast. Yes, um, which I do. You know, I mean, my mom listens to this. I mean, it's oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I told her I was like, you got to listen to this. It, it's great. But um, there's how the heck did this happen? Because from what I've you know been able to gather and research, you had never listened to a podcast before doing the vertical. Uh, no, I've never listened to a podcast. I um, my fr- I remember my I guess it was my second year. My second year in L- L.A. Uh, when when Knox was born, Chelsea got really into cereal. Um, the podcast, not not right. like Life cereal yeah, yeah. or Golden Grams, but the, the the podcast cereal. And she kept saying to me like, "You gotta listen to this. You gotta listen to this." And I had been on a couple podcasts, but I just didn't sort of get the podcast thing. And Woj, uh, Adrian Wojnarowski, um, approached me. Uh, I guess in the summer of two thousand. 15 about uh, being sort of a correspondent on his plat his platform that Yahoo's giving him, which is the vertical, the name of my podcast, the vertical podcast with JJ Reddick. Yeah. And he said, you know, we'd love to have you be involved with, with the platform. And initially the thought was to do like eight to 10 sort of pre-written 
um, articles. Uh, what is it like insider look like? What is it like to be traded at the trade deadline? All right, we'll release that at the trade deadline. Uh, what's it like to be on a long road trip away from your family? All right, release this when you kind of go out on your uh, on your East Coast swing. And I thought about it and I was like, listen, Woj, first of all, uh, anytime I've ever had a deadline as a writer, I'm always late and I stress about it. So I don't think that's going to work. And secondly, I said, it's the Players' Tribune. And, and that's not an offense to the Players' Tribune. I think what they do is awesome. But it's like, I, I, if I'm going to do something, I'd rather do something different. And he said, well, um, you know, Chris Mannix and I are, are both getting a podcast. Would you want to do a podcast? And um, I, I actually pretty much committed to it on the spot without actually knowing what I was getting into. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, sure. It sounds great. I'll do a podcast. Um, I did not, I did not realize sort of the, the, the bite of the apple that I was, I was biting off. It was a very big bite. It was a very big chunk of time. Yeah. Um, it, it's not just time sort of in recording, but it, it requires thought. I mean, you're essentially creating an hour of content every week. And yes. so I committed, I committed to doing 52 episodes. So I, you know, I committed to doing 52 hours of content, um, while simultaneously, you know, having a job and, um, and, you know, being a parent to two kids and, and being Chelsea's husband. So it's, it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, you're, it's interesting. So listening to your first podcast, you have, yeah. you know, this, this voice, it's a little bit more relaxed. This is what I'm going to do. And you listen to the most recent one, you know, like Balmer, Zach Lowe, you're, you're on, man. You like, you got the voice, you got, you know, the hooks. It's, I'm just like, how the hell does this guy just develop like, like lightning speed? You know, I mean, there's good breath between, you know, you let people talk. If someone's about to finish a thought, there's no, what the heck? Who taught you this? Um, no one, no one really. It's uh, it's interesting. I I love Woj. I love uh, digital media who produces my podcast. They have a great team on production and sales. Um, but I haven't. I mean, other than saying them saying good job, we're happy with the product. Um, I haven't really been coached by them. Um, you know, I I always enjoy sort of getting uh, both positive and negative feedback on on twitter and i and i use some of those things like i know early on i remember doing a, an episode with kyle corver on shooting mm -hmm. and um kyle was like just i love kyle but kyle was like talking and talking and i i kind of wanted to just get the conversation back on the on the path that i i wanted to be on and, and i remember interrupting him and i caught some flack for that on twitter um and so i was like okay let the guest talk there's there's lesson number one let the guest talk um, and then, you know, people would say something like, Oh, be more enthusiastic. And I'd be like, I'm naturally not that enthusiastic, but okay, I'll try to do that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I, 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 it's, it's similar to sort of how I learned to shoot is like, you just sort of pick up things, um, on the go. I mean, the other thing too, is like, I remember like probably the first, ah, probably like 15 episodes I did, I would, I would like chug a beer right before I recorded them. <laughs> Because I was uh, I was so nervous about doing it, um, and then you know the other thing too is like when you have sort of great guests um, who you can go back and forth with, it becomes sort of more of a conversation. Which was always the goal was to have conversations rather than interviews. I mean, I have no media training whatsoever, 
Um, so my, my goal always, I have two goals really. Number one is to have a great conversation um, with, with someone that I find interesting about a topic that I find is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then number two is there's a reason that I'm having the guest on. So it's either relevance uh, in terms of timeliness, something going on in the world. All right, let's have this person on. An example of that would be like Bill Roden, who's one of my heroes as a writer. Um, you know, he's written for 30 years on on sort of racism in sports. I had him on when, you know, the Kaepernick thing was was front and center. Yeah. Um, and so so relevance and timeliness that but also like there's a reason I'm having this guest on because I, I respect them and I admire them. And I want my listeners to also respect and admire them. I want, you know, my goal for every episode is sort of like the listener to say, that was an awesome guest. I have a newfound respect for that person. I'm a fan of that person now. Uh, Matt Barnes, I, there's so many people that were like, man, I, got, I, I saw Matt Barnes in an entirely new light. Like Matt Barnes has such a bad reputation. Oh, yeah. But I've, I've been his teammate twice. He's one of my favorite teammates ever. And I wanted to get that across to people like, this guy's an awesome guy. Yeah, that it was a it was a great episode. Um, and I, you know, the the media training or the or lack thereof that you're saying, but just like you know, soliciting feedback and stuff from others. You know, I think what's got to be a little bit challenging for any professional athlete, and luckily in your case, you've been able to to build, a, you know, an extremely successful career of it. That there is, you know, you're not going to be able to play basketball when you're like 65 right or 50 or you know 45 or you know so 40 probably 40 yeah 35 maybe i don't know yeah Yeah. and i mean i doubt you want to uproot the whole family and and go to china and play you know uh so i think you know you had kind of mentioned before that oh you know maybe you'd like to get an nba post the nba um you know did you do you see yourself getting more into media and you know, sort of commentating in that, in that sense, like down the road or, or like front um, office work or, I mean, this is a very big question, so feel free to, yeah. you know, whatever. I, I think there's, there's a few things that interest me, um, in terms of, uh, what I'd like to do post-career. Uh, number one, if I was to do something in basketball, it would not be coaching. Uh, it would definitely be front office. Uh, I'd love to be a GM. I think that's, you know, you, you, you get to stay in the game and the game has been obviously very good to me. Um, and I love the game and you get to be competitive and there's sort of, you know, there's tangible results. Like, can we manage our salary cap? Uh, can we draft? Well, uh, am I putting a winning product out there? Is there synergy between myself and the ownership and myself and coaching? Like there's tangible things that you can sort of measure, um, in that regard. Like, commentating for me i don't know that i'm built for it because um like i I mentioned earlier like i went to school so i could sort of get my competitive outlet out like i don't know that there's like a way to sort of measure your ability as a commentator um i you know sitting behind a desk and uh talking about uh you know cleveland's weak side defense i just (laughs) I just don't see it in the cards for me, man. And and I, I, like, it's not it's not like a money thing. Like if if ESPN or Fox or you know whatever Turner was like, hey, you know we'll give you, like, I would be flattered. But it's not. It, it's it just it's not really on my radar right now. Um, but 
Um, I have enjoyed the podcast, and the part of the podcast that I've enjoyed is is the content part. And you know, I've I've had sort of early, very early discussions with um, some some content creators um, about sort of what the next steps could be post career with that. So that's something I'm interested in. Um, I'm being very vague on purpose, by the way. Oh no, that's uh, I would assume, yeah. And, and, and then um, and then the other thing that really I I really want to do is. Um, I want to go back to school and get my MBA. Uh, and uh, for one, it gives me two years to sort of figure out what I want to do. But um, <clears throat> the idea of, you know, retiring, let's say around the age of 35 and then completely, you know, reinventing yourself is, is exciting to me. Um, I was at this, uh, this, tech and media conference is a very small thing that Goldman Sachs put on this summer in Napa Mm -hmm. and um, was speaking with uh, one of the sort of global head of banking for Goldman Sachs, this guy, David Solomon. And we were talking about post-career stuff and, and he said something to me. He was like, he's like, you know, if you stop playing at 35 and then you worked in another career, like you could have a full career, a full 30 year career. And so that I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. Like, yeah, it's like a normal person's career in, in any field. Like 30 years is a long time. Like I don't, you know, I know I want to work. Uh, I know I want to do something that, you know, is exciting and, and I'm passionate about. And so, you know, I think as, as it gets closer and closer to sort of that end date, because I know, you know, my body can only take so much. Um, I'll, I'll continue to sort of think about it more and more and, and sort of narrow down what I want to do. Yeah. I mean, that is, I mean, that is true. I, having an extra 30 years in the yeah. sense, I mean, a lot of people, you know, you're just hoping that you'll be physically able to, you know, to sit at a desk, you know, and in your case, you'll, you know, you'll have yeah. kind of the whole world in front of you. Is, well, the other thing too is like, like, there's no other career that is like an athlete. Like if you're lucky That's enough very true. <laughs> to, to play till you're like 30 to 35, let's say, like there's nobody saying to a lawyer at 32, like, hey, you got to stop practicing law and you got to find a completely new profession. Or you, you know what? You can't practice medicine anymore. I'm sorry. You can't be a doctor. Go go find something else. Like that's crazy to think about. And and obviously, l- listen our our you know income is reversed to most people we make most of our lifetime earnings in our 20s which is very rare i get that but like we still got to find something to do we still got to find something to <laughs> occupy our time for yeah. 30 years you know so it's 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 crazy man i you know people love to like make this like athletes they're so stupid you know how could they blow all that money like we're we're in our 20s if you give any 20 year old 8 million dollars a year like he's going to spend a lot of money <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> this that is, I mean that is very true. I mean that's you know uh, that is what a lot of athletes do, but that doesn't make them stupid. Yeah, you're right. 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 <laughs> I'm very I'm very pro athlete, and some of the you know topics and stances that I you know take on my podcast you know are obviously very pro athlete and uh, in support of sort of you know our profession. But athletes, I, I've been around professional athletes now for 11 years. Like they're they're literally some of the most thoughtful intelligent people that I've ever been around across every race. And I've played with a lot of different races, races, a lot of different religions, people from Europe, people from Africa, people from the United States. And it, they just get such a bad rap and it drives me freaking crazy. 
And um, anyways, I, I just, it, it, you know, it's it's similar to how I guess I guess how sometimes the media works. I'm sorry, I'm on a tangent here, but no, it's just you know, if, if something if something you know some something happens, a guy you know throws his mouth guard in the stands. Let's say um, it's like an affront to the entire sort of profession of how of dare sports. he, how unsportsmanlike. Right, it's like all athletes. Uh, athletes, like, there's just another spoiled brat acting out again. You know, it's yeah, it's just absurd to me. So, anyways, sorry. No, no, it's it's. I mean, it's very real, and I, I think, you know, it's coming from someone who's just a fan who loves to just, you know, criticize the game. Even though I could never ever put in the work of, I can't even get up early enough to go to the gym like by myself to just be a normal human being. But to just get up and do that every day and to force yourself to improve, and then you have a gajillion other people trying to tell you how to do it better. I mean, yeah. I cannot imagine the amount of stress uh, and just constant criticism that any athlete receives. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's, it's even. I mean, it's even worse now. I mean, it is. It's like, oh yeah, with, with Twitter and Instagram, you know, it's like you put up. A, I put up a picture of my son on Instagram, and it's like eight comments. You know, you shit the bed last night. Horrible game. What are you doing? You know, it's like. <sighs> Like I just, and I just wanted to share this picture with my friends. <laughs> Whatever. You're like, Sorry. You're like, Sorry. well, uh, just proud thanks. of my kid. Yeah. Just proud of my kid. You're like, yeah, but but actually, I'm really proud of my kid. Can we talk about that? <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, that's great. Well, at least you can. You filter. can't escape it. You can't escape the criticism. You yeah. Can't. At least you can filter some stuff on Instagram now. Have you done that? I mean, you don't have to even tell me if you have, but you can actually uh, go on to Instagram and put certain words that you never want to have in your comments. And if anyone uses those words in the comments, it just doesn't show up. I yeah. can think of a few words that I would not like to see. There no, I go. haven't done that. Yeah. I also haven't been on my personal account, like my, my you know, my, my account in, mm -hmm. in a while. I, I just, I've been on my, um, my kind of private account for yeah. the last couple months. So I hear you. Yeah. Um, I want to respect your time. And so I know that we're about out. Um, there was a couple other things I wanted to ask you about your podcast and uh, a couple, a couple of things before we finish. Sure. So when you had started doing your podcast, what, you know, I know that in the NBA, it's, you know, thanks to, to David Stern, you know, kind of cleaning up a lot of the, uh, as far as the, you know, back in the seventies when people were just like, lid out of their minds snorting coke and stuff playing games obviously <laughs> yeah. it's not like that but yeah. what's did you have to get any type of approval to to have a you know more or less an ongoing weekly commentary about basketball and <laughs> uh man uh not that i know of maybe my agent did i don't know i i i, I did um <clears throat> and uh, i know adam a little bit but I, I didn't i didn't go to the league or anything i didn't even go to my own team i mean i didn't I didn't tell like Doc and Steve Ballmer that I was doing a podcast. I just started it. Um, and I think if, if there was a reason for me to like, if I thought it was going to be sort of any sort of, I guess, conflict of interest, or uh, if I was like, he, you know, worried I was going to sort of bash people, I guess, which I don't really do. I don't know. Really not, not at all. I don't, I don't really make hot takes. Like I'm not in the hot take business. <laughs> <laughs> So no, I didn't, I didn't get any approval. It was just like three weeks into it. You know, they asked doc about it and doc was like, yeah, it's fine. No worries. I was like, all right. 
you know, I guess, I guess it's fine. Um, you know, what's funny, funny. I didn't even, I didn't even think to ask Doc or Palmer if, <laughs> and, and they're my, uh, you know, they're my employers. So I, I, I didn't think to do that. Maybe I should have, I don't know. No, I mean, I mean, obviously it was good and it's good enough that Palmer came on. I mean, that yeah. was an incredible episode, especially because, and this is, I think, why I like the podcast so much. I mean, apart from you and your personality, I mean, there's nothing in history, honestly, that I can find of an athlete playing, you know, at, you know, a professional, professional sport team, you're starting shooting guard, and you have a weekly commentary that obviously, you know, you commented about the Blake Griffin thing when that yeah. happened when yeah. right when you guys got eliminated you went and talked about it uh and you know most of the time i have to get that through you know if if i want to follow my team i have to kind of you know go and follow whatever writers and then hope that they can get in a question in the locker room when that happens and this is like the guy who's talking about it <laughs> yeah i mean yeah, that i mean that, that was sort of the goal i guess to to be to be inside uh, I, I always try to be unfiltered. Um, I, I, the, you mentioned the Jamal, like the episode we did, we lost in game six to Portland. Uh, we got back to LA at probably 2 a.m. Um, I was at Jamal's condo building uh, the next morning at like 10 a.m. And him, him and I just like talked for an hour about the season and the disappointment of losing and, you know, three straight years in the playoffs with these sort of epic collapses. And, well, you know, this year was obviously Chris and Blake getting hurt, you mm-hmm. know, it's kind of out of our control. But, um, you know, we just we just sort of hashed it out. Um, that was one of my favorite episodes we did. Uh, and, and you're right. Like, I, I think that's sort of the power that the athlete has now. Um, we're able to um, tell our own narrative. Yeah. And, I, you know, the narrative word, I guess, People in the media now don't like that word because it's it's like a it's like a dirty word now. But um, let's say but maybe your perspective like, or whatever. Yeah, 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 but no. But it's in terms of like telling your story, um, you know, with social media, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, um, and and sites like the Players Tribune or Uninterrupted, uh, and and obviously um, I have a podcast. Uh, you can you can tell your own story, and and so that that episode. Um, well, to me is one of the, the, you know, three or four best and favorite episodes that I've done. I actually, I love the Balmer episode. First of all, it's so, it's so random. Like I'm still like trying to wrap my mind around this that like, I'm, you know, I'm an employee and I sat there for an hour and interviewed my boss essentially, you know? Yeah. And then when you factor in they're like, Oh, my boss is worth 30 billion, 30 <laughs> billion. Yeah. And I got to spend and I've spent I mean, I've spent three or four hours of just like one on one time with this guy prior to that. Like he's so accessible. And then not only that, like he was so engaged in the episode. Like extremely. That guy, that guy gave me an hour of like his time. Not just like punching a clock, like, all right, I'm here, I did it, crossing off my checklist. Like he was so present in that conversation. Um I, I just I have so much respect for Steve. I think he's, I think he's awesome. And I, I, I like, it was, I still like, I think about that. I'm like, man, that is still just, I can't completely wrap my head around that. Yeah. I mean, and you were, you know, that conversation's great. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the, in the show notes, but there's there, when he's talking about 
that he was talking with Paul Allen and, you know, you were asking him about how he acquired the Clippers and he's like, well, it was more like how I tried not to buy a team. And, you know, he's like, and Paul Allen's telling me you got to buy a team, you know, and he had gotten the Seahawks and he had the, and he had Portland. Yeah. Yeah, And you were like, (laughs) you're like, so what do your normal friends think of this? (laughs) (laughs) Do you have normal friends? Yeah. Cause that's very true. It's like, you know, if you're, um, there's the guy who founded Minecraft, uh, is a guy named Notch and he has a Twitter account and, you know, he coincidentally sold his company to Microsoft and is a, you know, uh, a billionaire or whatever from it. But he talks a ton about how he has so much money, but he doesn't really know how to have the life that he used to have because he has so much money now. And, you know, I think that is something that, you know, I wonder, you know, Balmer seemed very acutely aware of his, of his wealth and, and, you know, his abilities, hence the, you know, the foundation that him and his wife were doing. Right. You know? So he is very aware. Another thing I'll say about like Balmer, like he, these are like little snippets. And I, 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 I consider myself to be fairly observant about people. And like, I remember, um, first of all, Balmer, he has his own private plane. That's, that seems pretty obvious. Um, yeah. but you know, I've, I've flown on a couple of times. He, he sort of lent it out to, um, guys, uh, during all-star break or whatever. And one time he was on the flight with us and, I was talking to him and just having a conversation about his history and his wife and his family and all this. And, you know, he mentioned like, yeah, but we bought our house in 1987 or something. And, uh, we remodeled it in 1991 when we got married. And I'm like, Oh, where do you live now? He's like, Oh, we live in the same house. And I'm thinking to myself like this guy bought a house and he's worth 30 billion. He's bought a house in 1987. He lives in the same house for 30 years. And then we land and he, he jumps into his, his car, his personal car. It's a Lincoln MKX. It's a very nice car. Don't get me wrong. But it's a $30,000 car. Like the guy, <laughs> the guy just has like he, – he just – it's like no excess. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I just I, – I, I, I just – I love that about him. I, I just think he's like – he's so driven on like what's important. And I know his family is huge to him. And now like we talked about on my podcast, but like he's really starting to focus his sort of – his post-retirement from – from Microsoft or whatever, he's, he's really focused on philanthropy and, and where his money that he's going to give away is best served. Um, just an awesome guy. Yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a phenomenal episode. Um, the very last thing I want to get into is, so how you and I met was yeah. obviously through a mutual friend of ours, uh, Ben Clymer, whom I just had on the pod not too long ago. Um, and, you know, he talks about how, you know, getting to, to, to meet you and, 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 you know, and the fact that you did the talking watches episode and, and how that was also kind of what helped push him, uh, you know, his company and business to the next level. But he said, you know, and you had shared in other interviews where people have asked you about it, how, you know, Ben's sense of, of, uh, you know, what he likes and, you know, what he, what he sees as, as like valuable watches and things like that. Is really interesting to you, you know, because you said you've only been collecting watches for what, like eight years now, nine? Um, yeah, I mean, I probably started collecting maybe in like 2008 or 2009. I got into watches like where I was like, you know, on forums and, and blogs and stuff during the lockout. I had way too much time on my hands. So that was like 2011. Okay. Um, and then I did the Talking walk, Watches episode in, I think we recorded it in August of 2013, right after I'd signed with the Clippers. Yeah. And um, I, I, I'm not sure that I own any of the watches. That <laughs> right. That's what that I was going to ask. So what do you still watches. own? <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I'm not sure I own any of them. Um, I have, I have, I mean, it's I, I, what I consider to be a pretty small collection of watches. Um, it's usually like around a dozen, and and now like I, I know what I want. Like I, I collect, you know, Rolex Daytonas and and uh, and complicated Pateks. So I don't have a ton of watches, but that's what's in my collection. And um, you know, I think uh, I think anybody who like gets into watches and really like really gets into watches and wants to have multiple watches or whatever, like you're gonna, you're gonna buy some watches that you later sell. I think Ben talked about it on the podcast. I listened to the podcast. It was a great episode, but like Ben talked about it, like you have to be willing to sort of part with things. Um, there's literally, there's one watch that I would never part with. And it was a watch that was given to me. Um, and it's, it's a Cartier Santos Dumont. And Mm -hmm. it was given to me when I got engaged and um, I wore it on my wedding day. It's inscribed on the back with our wedding date, um, you know, June 26, 2010. And I've worn it to every wedding since that I've ever been to. It's my wedding watch. It's, you know, my boys hopefully will wear that watch on their wedding day. So it's that's the only watch that has any sort of sentimental value. One of my teammates asked me like two years ago, he's like, what? He's like, what watch? Because this is when I started like getting into like Daytona's, like vintage Daytona's and and like. Patek perpetual calendar chronographs. He's like, what watch would you literally like kill, kill someone for? Like if they try to take it off your wrist, (laughs) it's like, I was like, bro, I was like, they're just, they're just things like I, they're just things. They, they really, they hold no intrinsic meaning to me. They're just something that's fun to do. I think they're awesome. They're, they're art to me, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I was like, I kill somebody if they mess with my wife, like, or my son, like that's, yeah. and, and, and for so many people who get into watches, like it's the watch or whatever, it's the status of a watch. Like, oh, I really want to own a Rolex or I want to have a gold dress watch. Like that's what attracts you to watches. But what makes you stay, I guess, is, you know, sort of the people and the interactions and the knowledge and the history. And, and for me, like, it's really like learning about the history, like being knowledgeable. And it's funny because I've, I've probably watched that Talking Watches episodes that I did. I probably watched it like... I know I watched it right when it came out, but I probably watched it like twice in the last year. Mm-hmm. And really interesting, um, like how much I guess how much more I know now. <laughs> like if, that, if that's a that's a way to put it. Yeah, I mean that's uh, I, I a lot of the watches that I have I don't or that I used to have I don't own anymore. Um, except like I have my dad's old um, my dad's old Elgin. And, and that's like your sentimental watch. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's the watch, you know, because I've more or less been kind of like everyone else in that you just trade up, you know, you get this and you trade up, you get this and you trade up. I think that's what's the most fun about it is like, really, they're just baseball cards, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just like you can trade them, you know, they're expensive, they're yeah. nice, beautiful works of art, but you know, yeah. it's, it's okay. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think there's like, there's like three, there's like three types of collectors. I feel like I'm in the second tier of collectors. Like there's the people that are like, I'm into watches. And then they, you know, they have three uh, rose gold Ublos and you're like, okay, you're into watches. All right, bud. Yeah. You mean you have the money to purchase watches? Yes. That's really the first tier. Like you have the means to purchase, you know, a $5,000 watch or a $10,000 watch. Like that's fine. And that's fine. That's fine. Then there's like the second tier where like you study watches, you're into watches, um, you know, you aspire to own certain references. Um, you know, you learn about the history of brands and why this reference or that reference is important. And that's sort of the tier that I'm in. And then there's like the third tier, which is like, 
the people, I, I guess you'd call them like mega collectors. These are the people who go to Geneva twice a year and they bid on million dollar watches. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't actually know if they ever wear them. I don't know if they, they just kind of have them for a little bit and then they, they, you know, they put them back up for auction. Like that's the tier that I never want to be in. I don't ever want to be in that tier. I'm perfectly content being in the tier that I'm in. Yeah. It's definitely a tougher tier. Um, a friend of mine whom he's, a an art collector and he, uh, was telling me, you know, he collects, uh, Edward Hopper's and, uh, he was like, yeah, the value of hoppers have have gone up so much because the people that are the biggest collectors of hoppers are Bill Gates and Steven Spielberg. And wow. both of those guys are billionaires. So he's like, when you get, you know, because he was talking about watches too, like on how, you know, a watch will just skyrocket in value. He's like, when there's just a very few amount left of them and really it's just the wealthiest people want them, you know, the value, you know, what's, what's, What's a couple million extra dollars to, you know, someone who has billions in that sense, you know, so that's why, you know, Picasso's and all these other things, $200 million, $300 million now, you know, so I, I imagine that's very similar to the fact that, you know, like this upcoming, you know, right. there's, the, there's a Patek 1518 in steel, yep. one of four known, it's an immaculate condition, it's being auctioned off, I think on November 12th in Geneva, Yeah. Uh, you know, 5 million, 6 million for the watch. Easy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know that anybody's going to enjoy wearing it. I think maybe they do. Maybe Ben bids on it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Doubtful. Like probably Davide. Uh, no, but it's uh, it's it it is man. It's like I always the thing too with like watches is like people get uber competitive online about watches. Like whether it's like I know more than you, or you bought a bad watch, or this is fake, or this is, uh, and it's like it's always this like one upmanship that goes mm-hmm. on. I think you see it. You definitely see it on forums a lot, um, and I've noticed you started to see it on IG, you know, on the gram too a lot. Oh yeah, uh, which is kind of unfortunate because, like, like w- <laughs> when you really have the perspective of like it's it's a first of all it's a watch it's just a thing. Secondly, like if you're arguing with someone over a twenty thousand dollar watch, like what are you really arguing over? You know, it's <laughs> probably like there's probably more important things to argue over. Than, it's like, true. You know, the authenticity of it. You know, it's just like, 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 let's, let's talk about like early education, man. You guys want to, you guys want to argue and debate over early education? Like, I don't need to argue and debate over like, you know, what year guilt dial 5513 started being printed. I don't care. Like, that <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> no, that's very true. <laughs> well, so I really, really wanted to thank you for coming on. This has sure, been man. a ton of fun. Uh, was there is there any other stuff that I didn't get to ask or that you wanted to to mention before we we get off here? Um, no, you know I th- I do think I I wanted to ask you though, like uh, you know we met um, I guess it was maybe two years ago. I don't even remember. It was a year and a half, two years ago. It was yeah, something I think like that. Febu- fe- February, maybe almost two years ago, a year and a half ago. Yeah. Yeah. And um, do you ever go back to Brandy Library? I do. That's where we met. Yeah. Yeah. I go spot. there. It's like a friend of mine's uh, one of the bartenders at Brandy Library. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I feel like for me, um, there's like a few like go to, hey, buddy, there's like a few go to nights in New York and like going to Brandy Library and then having like two cocktails and then walking down the street and going to La Conda Verde for dinner and having a nice bottle of wine. That's like, that's like as good as it gets for me. I don't need to go to a club. I don't, that's just like Brandy Library, La Conda Verde. In and out, we're good. Yeah, clubs are very, very overrated. 
it, it's more fun to just sit with a few people and yeah, share share a couple of drinks and eat some yeah. good food for yeah. sure. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, so last thing, what's what's next? In terms of uh, in, in terms in terms of, of JJ of JJ Reddick Inc. Um, <laughs> more kids, more more watches, more wait, a ring. What is it? Um, I think we, I think making it through this year. I think is the goal. <laughs> no, it's, two kids is challenging. I think making it through this year. I'm a free agent next summer. Um, we'll see what happens. And uh, I, I would like to say that we're, we're, we are definitely done, done having kids. So. <laughs> well, and my two-year-old cries in the background. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. Thank you so much it's for authentic. coming on. It's authentic, man. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate it, man. All right. See ya. You've been listening to Blamo, a podcast with an exclamation point. I want to thank my guest, JJ, for coming on today. You can keep up with him by listening to his podcast, The Vertical with J.J. Reddick, and tuning into the L.A. Clippers on NBA League Pass. If you like what you heard today, subscribe and listen to new and archive episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Find me elsewhere on the web on Instagram and Facebook at Blamo Podcast, or send me an email at blamopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks a lot. See you next week.